Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thanks so much for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Jack Hartley. And if you're not familiar with Jack, Jack is an Australian producer and audio engineer who works out of a studio called Interim Recording Studios in the heart of Adelaide. And Jack works pretty extensively with a lot of different metal subgenres. And he's worked with some artists, including Truth Corroded, Hidden Intent, Relapse, Werewolves, Shatterbrain, and so many more. And in this conversation, we have a really fun chat about a couple different things. One, we talk a lot about his startup when he was getting into making audio a full-time career and how he did that and how he managed to get himself established, connect with the right people, get the clients through the door, and actually start shifting his business from more of a a hobby thing into an actual business and some of the things that come along with that. Because it does take more than passion, it does take more than audio skills to actually have a successful business and to be able to go full time with this. So inside of this interview, Jack definitely gives us some insight into his process and how he did it. And I think there's a lot of great takeaways from there. And then we also start to talk a little bit about some metal production stuff and some of the really cool techniques that he likes to use when he's tracking and when he's mixing to make sure that he's getting a lot of clarity, especially with really low tuned instruments. And when it comes to things like vocals also making sure that you know he's he's capturing the vocals in a way that sound exciting and that sound controlled and and really upfront in the mix he shares a lot of really great tips here so i know you're going to really find this episode very helpful so let's just jump right into it jack hartley thank you so much for being on the master mix podcast how are you today i'm very well thanks mike thanks for having me no problem for people who might not know your background and what you do how you got into the industry and uh you know all the things that you've done to get to where you are today like can you give us that story? Um, yeah, well, I'm uh, obviously a professional audio engineer, uh, mixer slash producer, wearer of many hats in the studio. Um, I work mostly in the um, heavy music subgenres. Um, I, I work on pretty much anything with with uh, big ass drums and big ass guitars, but so that will include you know a bit of pop punk alternative rock and stuff but i I mainly kind of will almost exclusively work in in um hardcore metalcore death metal uh thrash metal um all of the the fun subgenres um i've been working full-time for about uh four years now um so I'll, i'll be 32 in a few days and um i been into audio for as long as I've been into music, which is probably around about the age of 12. Amazing. That's great. So how did you first start getting into this? Um, well, uh, as I said, I picked up the guitar first. And um, as long as I've been playing the guitar, I've, I've been trying to capture the guitar. Um, so, you know, as soon as I could play my first riff, I was... Um, you know, recording them on my dad's little handheld dictaphone thing. Um, and, you know, looking back at the time, it kind of felt just like random bits and pieces here and there, but it was actually a pretty natural evolution of, of you know, like playing guitar, capturing riffs on a dictaphone, and then, um, you know, like a 
progressed a little bit and started writing my own songs. And then for Christmas one year, I got like a a uh, BR sixteen hundred. I think they were called like a I think the it was boss like recorders. Digital... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember those. I I really kind of got my programming chops pretty solid from those because they were they were kind of um, difficult to get a workflow on. Um, um, so yeah, I I kind of um, eventually graduated from that to to like an old computer that we had uh, from my parents' work just just hanging around and um, messed around on on Cakewalk and Fruity Loops and stuff. And then when I was about sixteen, I discovered Pro Tools and and got my first kind of modest PC and just was off and running from there, mostly kind of making my own songs and and uh, recording friends and and recording jams and stuff like that. And so it was it was always in parallel to the musician thing. It was always just kind of there. Um, and um, I uh, I was eventually kind of um, just by chance uh, met a lady that uh, ran a studio in the Adelaide Hills um, and uh, she had had graduated from SAE and wasn't super pleased with their curriculum or, or what she came away from from the course uh, with. So she ended up rewriting uh, the course basically and, and was giving private kind of one-on-one audio lessons and pretty quickly um, into, you know, engaging in those lessons, um, this lady catch on, her name was, um, she discovered that I was probably not cut out for any kind of formalized type <laughs> education or anything. So that kind of just turned into like a kind of, you know, mentor uh, relationship where she would kind of invite me up to her studio um, and I would just kind of hang out and absorb any knowledge I could and kind of, you know, assist and set things up and run Pro Tools and stuff like that. And and that continued on till I was about 18 or 19. And then, um, you know, around about that time, I was recording friends' bands and putting out demos and, and just doing stuff casually. And I'd say from from like 1920 to to um, my early mid-20s, I, I kind of lost focus a little bit and was pursuing playing in bands and um, touring internationally and stuff like that. And um, I think uh, around 25, I, I kind of lost interest in, in being a musician and found the live thing wasn't for me and really really kind of um, just threw myself into the studio stuff and found that was where my true passion lied and um, started taking it pretty seriously and and trying to kind of, you know, establish myself as an engineer around town. And um, by 27, I was, I was, you know, had enough business to, to go full time and, and um, eventually kind of got a residency at one of the the better studios around town and um, have just been kind of going steady ever since. That's amazing, man. Yeah, that, that's super cool that you 
were able to find a mentor that was able to help you with all that stuff and that really believed in you enough to like show you that process and to go through it. And um, it's funny, like listening to your story, I definitely hear a lot of crossover between your story and my story. And, you know, instead of instead of having one of those boss recorders, I had like a Roland recorder, you know, it's the same idea, yeah, right? It's yeah. like you kind of graduate <laughs> up to like a computer and you're like, oh, shit, like there's so much more power in the computer than there yeah, is in this yeah. like, you know, <laughs> physical thing in front of me. Um and then, yeah, I, like, you know, I also was very deep into like the touring and, you know, trying to pursue the the rock star dream or whatever, you know. And yeah, um, yeah I, I'm curious to know, like when you were at that point where you realized like that the touring life wasn't for you, like, why did you feel that way? Um, to be honest, um, I think I knew it in instinctually before I kind of um, was willing to admit it to myself. Um, I think I had spent a lot of my teen years playing in bands and, and, um, you know, trying to take things as far as we could, um, that I, I kind of really needed to, um, to kind of take it to the limit, uh, before I was able to, to, um, admit to myself that I, it, it really wasn't for me. I mean, looking back, there were, there were signs along the way. Um, uh, but I think I just was just, stubborn young person as you say with the rock star dream that I um I I kept getting close and then things wouldn't work out and eventually I I found myself in a band where we we kind of you know we we did the whole thing we we like you know toured very extensively and was on a label and and uh you know in and out of the studio and, and really kind of going for it and um I think by that time I was a little older and and a little wiser and a little bit more self-aware and in tune with what I wanted from life. And, um, I think, I think I just eventually got to a point where, um, I couldn't really, I couldn't really pretend that what I wanted when I was 16 was what I wanted when I was 25 anymore. And, um, and, um, you know, going, having to leave, you know, to go on tour or, or, you know, like, postponed studio things and stuff was was just kind of leaving me not in a very good way and uh you know wasn't really getting along with with people and wasn't enjoying the traveling and it was pretty out of character for me and I I I just saw that as signs that that I um I really wasn't in in my element or in my environment that I was comfortable touring and stuff and um more and more my focus just shifted i I, my standard dropped as far as um, what I was um, willing to put in to the live shows and to the practicing and to the financial part of uh, side of things and time commitments and stuff like that. And it, it all just kind of eventually culminated in, in me kind of going like, I think I've got to be honest with myself. I think um, the studio is, is where it is. And I, I've, I've heard a saying, you know, that you can do anything you want in life, but you can't do everything. And, um, that, that's particularly true if you're like pretty invested in the studio side of things and trying to, to be a touring musician. And I think like there's the anomalies that are maybe in pretty successful major label bands that are able to juggle the two. But I, I think it's, it's, near on impossible to to juggle the two um unless you're at a certain level so i just kind of got honest with myself and and thought well now's the time to um to you know put all of my eggs into this one basket and it's 
where I'm getting all of my fulfillment. It seems to be, um, you know, it, it, it isn't taxing to, to put all of my energy into it. Everything just kind of seemed right. And, and yeah, I just kind of transitioned, but, um, it wasn't, um, you know, without a lot of years of, of kind of going back and forth and, and, you know, lying to myself and, and trying to, trying to push forward. Yeah, no, it, it's certainly a grind to pursue that lifestyle. And, you know, again, I, I was same thing. Like I, I did a lot of tour managing and, and uh, a lot of touring with my own band. And like, yeah, it, it's fun. It's like, there's no doubt about it. There's a lot of like really fun perks to it, but it can also be very taxing on you as well. And, you know, to know that you have a, a life back home when you're like, you know, however many miles away and, you know, you're you still have bills and stuff like that you're paying off at home. And it's like, you're not even there to get those, you know, <laughs> you know? Um, so it, it can, it can weigh down on you quite a bit. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, it, it's definitely a consideration. Cause I think a lot of people that get into this industry as recording engineers, a lot of them do it to originally record their, themselves as musicians. And it's like kind of living that, like that dream of like, Oh, I'm going to record myself and my band's going to, I can still help my band. And we're eventually going to still leave, live that rock star, that dream. Um, but like it does become hard to manage, especially if you do realize that maybe you do have more of a passion for the studio side of it and that the, maybe that is your your bigger calling, you know. Um, so, yeah, it, it's definitely interesting to hear where your perspective was, because I, I definitely can relate to that myself. Um, when you decided to go all in and just focus on the studio, like how did you get your start as far as like building that clientele and and you know, getting that ball rolling. Cause that's definitely something a lot of people fear is like, well, like, yeah, maybe I have the skills, but like, I don't know how to actually get people through the door. So, so what did For you do? Sure. Um, well, I was, I was lucky enough that I, I kind of had, you know, like a history of, um, of working with, with local bands and, um, recording friends bands and, and, um, pretty early on, you know, from around those, you know, like 16 to, to 19, 20, around those years, I, I was still recording bands. Um, I was still playing in bands. And I think when you play in local bands, if you're the band that gets the good supports and stuff like that, you know, um, it's it's pretty easy to kind of transition that into, you know, like, well, you know, come come to me. I've got a small setup in my parents' shed and, I can do some demos for you and, you know, I do pre-production for my own band and I kind of had like a, a pretty like a decent history and client base already there and I did lose focus and kind of um, just drift for a few years when I was when I was doing uh, more intensive touring and stuff like that. But I was able to kind of pivot back in time uh, so that, I was still somewhat relevant in the the local scene uh, amongst the the kind of metal and hardcore and metalcore community. Um, a lot of the people that I recorded um, and and did demos for a few years prior had had moved on to other bands, or you know some of them were still in those bands. Um, some of them, you know, had uh, had multiple bands at this point now. Um, so while it was a little bit of a rebuilding process, I did have a bit of a head start. Um, so I, I kind of, um, yeah, once I, I really, I really committed to, to doing it, I, um, basically just kind of 
put my name out there to to work for free to to um, work for fifty dollars, a hundred dollars, whatever whatever anybody would give me, and and just slowly built my resume back up. and And I was pretty lucky to have to have had that history of of doing demos and stuff like that from from pretty early on because I was able to kind of recorrect my course and and correct some mistakes that I made pretty early on. Whereas, you know, when I was younger, I, I had no idea about you know self promotion or I had no idea about what to charge or no idea of, of, of a business plan or, or really anything. And um, I, I was able to just kind of get my feet wet. And once I was able to, you know, once I was taking it seriously, I was able to pivot and, and yeah, recorrect my course, which um, was a, a bit of a blessing. So, yeah, I just started working on whatever I could, whenever I could. I, I kept working part-time jobs and, and I uh, kept myself afloat that way. And eventually, before I knew it, I had um, I had just built up a body of work that allowed me to get a bit of word of mouth flowing. And um, I think every stage of of your career or or your trajectory, there's always a leap of faith going into to the next level. And the big leap of faith for me was was going full time and. Just kind of assessing my situation and my client base, and and thinking, well, yeah, I think I can make this work, and and I'm, I'm if I kind of push myself into a corner, I think I'll I'll be able to kind of to keep afloat, and um and I kind of took somewhat of a calculated risk and went full time, and it was only about a year or so working out of a you know a spare bedroom in my house that I. Um, got offered a residency at at a studio here in Adelaide, and um, that was just kind of good timing. And and I think people had been seeing the work I had been doing, and and that was just the result of me putting my head down and trying to deliver as much value and work as hard as I can, and 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 really take everything that came through the door seriously before I had too many opportunities so so yeah i think people took notice of of the work i was doing and and i was able to land on my feet and um you know secure a spot to do it from commercially and yeah i've been pretty lucky that the trajectory has just kind of gone up from there yeah uh, absolutely but at the same time it sounds like you you did clearly work for it you know it wasn't it wasn't just luck sure. that, like it fell fell in your lap you know um but there was there were a few things there that i thought were interesting to unpack. And, and one of them was kind of something you kind of glossed on, which was that like the idea of um, when you would start and stop. And, and you kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier when we were talking about touring, but like how it would almost set you back a little bit from the production side of it, you know? And, yep. you know, I think that's definitely something I've experienced myself. It's like production is one of those things where like the more you're head down and like just doing it all the time, like the, the more, intuitive things become because it's not like you're you're not relearning it every single time and i think that that's something that even for people who are listening to this that might not be touring or um that kind of thing like it's just like it's like a muscle that you have to flex every now and then just to like keep it in the keep, keep it going you know and like so you know if, if you have to practice i think that's that's one thing to take from that is just like you know don't just work on projects whenever projects come up it's like practice and get better and like just keep that keep that 
that uh, muscle greased or whatever, whatever the expression would be, you know, but like, you know, by doing that, you at least start to make things become second nature to yourself or, you know, you're not having to not having to reteach yourself every time. Um, so that was something that I wanted to kind of just point out uh, that I kind of that I kind of I kind of took from what you said earlier. Um the other aspect of it was like the networking side of it. And this is why I said, like, you didn't really have luck. You, you just, I think you did a great job of networking. And, you know, I think that there's something to be said for that idea of when you're in bands, because a lot of people that are listening to this are in bands. It's like, don't just play your show, walk off stage and like not talk to, pe- to people and just be antisocial. It's like, there's actually a lot of people out there that you can connect with. And maybe that helps your band. Maybe that helps your studio, you know? And it's just like being a good person, being fun to hang around, you're going to meet those people and I love that you brought up the point of, you know, maybe you started recording one person's band and then that band turned into another band or multiple bands as everyone else went to their to their own thing. And, you know, and it's like that all it takes is one person, you know, to like get in with to maybe create that that spider web of potential clients as those bands expand or grow or whatever. Um, so really, it's just like there's there's the power of networking in action there. And I think you did a great job of that, obviously, to, to keep it going. Um, and then one other thing that I wanted to ask you about was you, you had talked about the idea of like correcting mistakes from your earlier days and how you started to get into like, you started to focus on like the business side of it and like, you know, making business plans and that kind of stuff. And that's a really interesting point that I, that I think is worth talking about because I think a lot of people just expect that their skills alone or their equipment alone or just like whatever the studio looks like alone is going to bring people through the door. But it sounds like you kind of realize, like, okay, there were there were some other mistakes that I made along the way in some of my earlier attempts at this. So, you know, like, how do I correct that? So, where did you, like, how did you learn to focus on those things? Like, wh- how, what what made you think to even establish a business plan or or you know reflect back on some of those other experiences and learn from those? Um, well, just jumping back a little bit, you articulated all of that really well. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, much better than I could have. Um, I think, I mean, slightly off topic, but like, um, what you originally said there, like, you know, practicing on the technical side of things, that was a mistake I made, um, early on because I was only really honing the craft when clients came through the door, you know, I would record a band and then a couple months later I would record another friend's band. And in between I was, not really staying sharp and you're correct that every time a band came in, I was kind of learning from scratch again and the the knowledge wasn't really working knowledge. It wasn't really second nature. Um, so, so just on a technical level, that was one of the mistakes I was able to kind of correct that like, this is, this is a pretty difficult to, to master art form. And, um, you have to really stay in it and stay sharp. And um, that means, you know, experimenting. It means um, staying sharp. It means staying on top of new techniques, uh, you know, um, new approaches. It means staying on top of what's relevant, uh, you know, production-wise and stuff like that. Uh, but to jump back to your question, um, I think I – I think – you know, through the mentorship I had early on, um, I had some pretty good advice that perhaps I was just probably too young and naive to take on at that point. Um, you know, my mentor, Kat, um, I really respected that she always communicated with me 
as if I was on her level, whether it be from a technical side or a business perspective or, or anything like that. If something was over my head, she would still um, explain it to me and and um, and kind of do her best to to kind of prepare me for when that knowledge might be um, might be relevant to me. And and she was very business savvy and. Um, I think um, I I knew what I wasn't doing early on. Um, you, you know, I, I knew that I I knew that I didn't uh, really have any form of promotion. I knew that I didn't really have any form of um, of kind of uh, business set up or anything like that. So I guess just the same way you learn from making mistakes on a technical side of things, and then hopefully not repeating that mistake or repeating it to a point where it finally uh, gets across that, you know, what you were doing wrong and why you should do different was kind of the same for the business stuff. Um, You know, I remember like the first time I had to send out an invoice was because, you know, a client asked me for an invoice for the first time. And I, I was like, Oh, that's right. i got to send out invoices um that's right i've i've got to keep track of this stuff i've i've you know i've got to register as a sole trader and i've got to um get all of my ducks in a row and to be honest those things one by one happen pretty slowly um and very much like the the technical side of things it was just jumping hurdles as i crossed them um i obviously did my best to cover whatever basis I could but a lot of it's just kind of learning from doing and um, correcting as you go and keeping what works and and adjusting what doesn't and and yeah that that can be said for the creative and technical side of things and the business side of things Um, so yeah I mean even to this day I'm learning more and more um, about things and I've learned enough at this point to realize that the best way to to learn and, and gain experience is just throw yourself in, you know, sink or swim, and and it, it might be a little bit messy or uh, um, a little bit difficult, but you know, most of the time you'll swim. You'll just you work out what you need to do, and and you'll do it. And if you ever have to do it again, you'll be more efficient and more experienced next time, and um, so on and so forth. Yeah, I love that. And I think that that's really important advice for people to hear because I think so many people will have this idea that you need to have all your ducks in a row. You need to have everything perfect before you jump into this. And because of that, it like almost paralyzes people from starting. And like no matter what, no matter how prepared you think you are, you're going to make mistakes along the way. And so you might as well just start from scratch and, and make those mistakes and learn along the way. And, you know, I love the I love the example you gave of like, someone asking for an invoice and you're like, Oh, I, I guess I need to do this. You know, <laughs> like that, like that, <laughs> yeah. that, that's something that like, you know, some people might think like, Oh, I need to have this, 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 and this like all ready to go. And then they have no clients through the door. And like, what was the point of spending all that time setting all that stuff up, you know, uh, versus like just being like, just putting your head down and doing it and then figuring it out as you go. And yeah, I, I think that that's really important. Cause I think there's a lot of people that are listening to this, that, want to get into this business, want to make it their career, but are just like feeling paralyzed and like feeling like they need to have everything yeah. all together before they can jump in. And uh, yeah, I think what you said there is, is just perfect and, and people need to hear that. 
yeah, analysis paralysis is is totally a thing, and and I suffered pretty pretty badly with that. I mean, I remember um, going back and forth for for years when I was starting out, and and I mean literally years. Like, do I register a business name? Do I operate under my own name? Um, and and that paralyzed me for years. And I wanted to to ha- put my best foot forward. And well, you know, if if I operate under a cool pseudonym or something like that maybe that'll be right for branding or you know if i uh, operate under my own name maybe uh, it'll uh, free me from the restraints of being connected to any one building or brand or facility or anything like that i went back and forth forever and would ask anybody that would listen you know what do you think about this and i finally got some advice that was like hey you're overthinking this just pick something and go. Um, and uh, I was given a great uh, great piece of advice that was like, well, if you're having trouble um, deciding on, on a name to operate under, why don't you just use your own name? Because you can't change that. <laughs> um, your name is your name. Uh, you are who you are. Pick it. You know, register a, a, an ABN and a uh, you know be- become a sole trader and start moving forward. If you decide to pivot and rebrand later on, so be it. But you can't do that until you start. And um, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think like from my experience, it is a it is a factor of of uh, wanting to to have everything perfect before you start moving. But if I could tell my younger self anything, it would be just just start moving, just start moving. Nothing's ever perfect. Um, the only way something can become good is if you build momentum and uh, work on it over time. Yeah, of course. And did you find that having your mentor, like was she helping you at all with like the business side of it once you kind of went all in for yourself? Um, well, she eventually um, got out of the the uh, recording game, and um, uh, so so f- when I started to get pretty heavily into to um, touring and, and playing in bands and stuff like that around around my early twenties, she had uh, had sold her studio and and moved on to a, another business, which she she and her partner Chris Lau currently. Uh, operate pretty successfully to this day, which is uh, Louder Guitars, which is a guitar uh, repair and, and um, custom build business. And um, and she she still has a, a home studio set up, and and once every now and then she'll she'll jump in there and and dust off the monitors and kind of do a a, a project or re- record some of her and her partner's music. But um, around this point, I was kind of flying solo but uh, as i said before she always um she always educated me as if i was on her level which was pretty advanced um and what i really appreciate about that in hindsight is that at the time a lot of things felt like they were going in one ear and out the other but um when i was ready uh the advice she had given me uh turned out to be absolutely invaluable. It was, you know, things that uh, she had just kind of planted seeds in my head and be it about business or conducting yourself on a personal level or or even just kind of how to 
how to um, navigate through, you know, some of the, um, you know, taking care of your health in, in an industry that it's, you know, doesn't necessarily promote mm-hmm. being out in the sun or taking care of yourself or having balance in any way. Um, all of those things she imparted on me were like really, really, really valuable to me um, the further I went along. And, and I found that um, I had all of these kind of light bulb moments where I'd go, ah, this is what she was talking about or um ah this is what she meant or ah this is why i should have acted on the the advice she gave me uh, earlier or this is why she was stressing it so much um yeah so she wasn't necessarily holding my hand through any of the process and you know like there were years where she was off you know doing the the guitar business and i was off pursuing band stuff and we'd just keep in contact uh you know through email or, or, or Facebook here and there. Um, uh, but although she wasn't wasn't kind of necessarily guiding me every step of the way and I, I was kind of on my own at this point, she she prepared me really well for, for what I would uh, come across in the future. That's awesome. Yeah, it sounds like you were really observant. And I think that that's something that's also really important for people to think about, especially if you have a day job, right? It's like so many people at day jobs tend to focus on their job and what they do and and it's like i know so many people that go through the situation like go through the scenario of they work at a job they only focus on what they do they get frustrated with like their boss or whatever and think like i could do that i could start my own business doing that you know whether it's audio or not and then like they jump into it thinking like all i have to do is my job but just better, you know and it's like and then you don't realize like all of the things that like their bosses or whatever like had to do to keep the business afloat, you know what I mean? And it's like, so I, I think that like for anyone who is thinking about pursuing this as a career, it's and you maybe do have a day job or whatever, like really focus on the operations of whatever business you work for. Like see what kind of things they're doing, see what kind of systems they're building. Cause those are all things that as non as much as those things might not be fun and exciting and they're not like the audio stuff that you absolutely love doing, it's like those are the things that are the foundation of a business. And without those, you're not going to get the clients through the door. You're not going to keep organized. You're not exactly. going to create that customer experience. You're not going to just have that like referral system or whatever it is to like make your studio business run properly. So, you know, it, it's definitely worth paying attention to what's going on around you, not just your own your own world sometimes, right? Um, and it's and it sounds like in your case with, the, with your mentor, you were able to, you know, maybe she didn't necessarily have like direct conversations about like, this is exactly what I do. But it sounds like you were at least picking up on some of these things that she was doing and, and you know, being able to then take that and implement it into your own business later on, which which is great. You know, obviously it's working for you. So, you know, that's really important. Yeah, if, if I had a dollar for every, you know, like a professional engineer that I've, I've spoken with that said, you know, I... I wish I studied business as opposed to spent all this money on, <laughs> you know, insert uh, audio education school here or, you know, um, I'd probably... You wouldn't need much- to have a business. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. Ex- and and I think, um, I think yeah, you, you make a really good point that it's not the romantic creative side of things, but... If you want to do this as a career or even as, you know, like a, a semi-career or a, a side hustle or a, a, a hobby that makes a little bit of money here and there, um, you, you have to at some point accept that it's the reality of, uh, 
of the business. It's um, it's if you love audio enough, um, well, this is what you're going to have to do. That's not so fun. That's not so romantic. That's not so creative. Um, and that you know, to me, is that I love audio so much that um, uh, I'm I'm willing to put myself some through some of those things and educate myself and invest in some of those things that. I left to my own devices probably have no interest in, but um, yeah, it's it's the cost of of creativity. I think like if you you just have to assess how much you love doing this and how much you want to do it and and um, how far you want to go, and then realize that you know there's not all of it is is um, fun and creativity, and that that's just the reality for sure. Yeah, man. Well, obviously, it's it's working well for you, and and you've taken a lot of the right steps along the way to to get that going. So, I, I definitely think people are going to take a lot from this as far as the business side of things goes. Um, I'd love to shift gears to talk a little bit about some of your actual productions as well, because you're working on a lot of really cool stuff. And as you mentioned at the very beginning of this, like you work on a lot of different uh, subgenres of metal, and like there's there's a lot that goes into metal, and metal is one of those things where it it's a tricky genre to mix because there's always so much going on, right? Um, whether it's like low tunings or fast tempos or just like screaming and stuff like that, like things that things that just like most genres don't have, you know? Um, so I'd love to talk a little bit more about the production side of, of it for that kind of stuff. Um, so, so speaking of low tunings, like I know that a lot of the bands you work on tend to have a lot of low tunings and low tunings can definitely be a challenge as far as like getting the clarity of the bass and the guitars and the kick drums and all that kind of stuff. Cause there's so much fighting for that low space. Right. And you're trying to just make everything still sound clear, but you know, get that, get that, um, get that focus out of all the instruments and, and preserve, still preserve that low heavy feel to it. So do you have any tips on how to get the low end sounding right between like your bass and your guitar tracks? Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, interestingly enough, I tracked a band um, a couple of weeks ago that were in uh, E octave. Um, so, so you know, E right down there. Um, up until this point, that's about as, as, as low as I've tracked before. I mean, it's pretty common to get bands in uh, drop A, which seems to be kind of uh, the norm these days with the more kind of corey bands and, and modern metalcore bands. But um you know, I'd track bands in drop F sharp and, and drop G and, and all of that stuff. Um, I find with the low tunings, it's not as crazy as, as maybe some people might think. Maybe they think that everything shifts down a lot further on the spectrum than it actually does. Um, I think for me, it's just um, not neutering too much of the low end considering where the fundamental shifts. Um, uh, I, I find the mid-range usually shifts down the most. That's probably what you have to pay attention to, um, just kind of making sure that um, you're not voicing the mid-range in the bass or the guitars too high. Um, and apart from that, it's just it's pretty much the same as everything. It's just kind of making space and making... Um, strategic decisions in the the tracking side of things to to complement the the tuning you're in um so and, and the like you said before there's there's a lot of fast tempo stuff going on in metal and depending on the subgenre there's also a lot of 
super slow stuff. Um, so kind of just just knowing what makes a, a genre tick, a subgenre work um, as far as aesthetics and approach and stuff like that is is important. But thinking ahead and thinking, well, you know, this song's going to have pretty low guitars, so I might want to choose a tuning scheme on the drums that um that kind of gets out of the way and and is articulate for the the tempos we're using um uh using kind of uh instruments that are that are voiced and and set up for low tunings really helps too i mean on the mixing side of things um i haven't found it to be to be greatly different, you know, just the same fundamental uh, techniques and approaches apply to to kind of uh, getting those lower tuned guitars and bass to to sit in the mix. Um, I find what's more important is is making decisions early on when getting the sound into the computer um, that you won't force you to to be backed into a corner or to um, be kind of um, locked into the the wrong area as far as frequencies and stuff like that so yeah just kind of making the right decisions on source tones is is a huge part of it yeah that makes a lot of sense and and it's something that i i as much as i hate to say it like so many people gloss over you know it's just like oh we just hit you know we just put a microphone in front of the amp and hit record and then you know we'll mix it in there later and we'll fix it up there you know and it's like no, man, it's like if you just if you spend the time, like you said, like think about the tuning of the drums and how that fits with everything else or to figure out like, you know, your your tone so that everything has its slot in the mix. Like, you know, it makes your life so much easier going going forward with it. Right. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned the idea of like how because you're in lower tunings, basically just like the the frequency range that you would maybe typically work on and standard tuning would kind of drop down a little bit. You know, just so that people have a so people have an idea of like how big of a shift that is. Like, what are we talking about here? Like, it's, you know, instead of maybe two K on a standard tuning range to get a little more presence on the guitar, like, what where are you typically uh, boosting for those? Um, I guess a good example might be a lot of people like kind of very present clangy bass tones in modern metal. Um, I find, you know, the lower the tuning goes. I, I usually like 3K for a, you know, standard tune guitar. Um, but um, if it's if it's right down there, I might find myself kind of voicing the mid-range around 750 or, or 1K kind of thing. Um, this, the same as the fundamental on the guitar, you know, like if the, there's something kind of, kind of lives around uh, 300 or something like that, um, it's only kind of shifted down to to 100 or something like that with the the E octaves and the G octaves and stuff like that. Just kind of being mindful of that, being mindful of where you uh, high and low pass things is is um, is what I do when I've got the low tune stuff. And something I've been really kind of focusing on lately is is not mixing by numbers. And if you're using your ear anyway, um, it, you know, like it. I don't think you'll run into to too many issues as long as you're aware that that everything has shifted down. Um, uh, I mean, it's the first thing most people usually go to when they instantiate an EQ is, well, let's carve out all of the low end um, 
uh, you know, with a, a low pass filter um, uh, and, and high pass on the other end kind of thing. And, and all too often people will just kind of set it at a number that they're used to um, or, you know, based on something that might have worked in the past. For me, um, it's all about kind of getting that filter and moving it until it's doing too much and then backing it off and then bypassing and and reinserting and bypassing and listening and comparing um, as opposed to just going, well, you know, you know, like filtering out from 90 or filtering out from 100 usually works. I'll just put that there. Um, so, you know, like anything with, with low-tuned guitars, you just kind of use your ear and be aware that you're probably going to be sitting a little bit lower with your filters or, or your notches or your bumps or whatever that you might commonly go to. Um, but still just use your ears, you know, if you're if you're notching out too much low end, pull it back a little bit. If um, you know, if it's not enough, pull it in a little bit. And for me, it's yeah, more. more I've been trying to really get in the habit of, of listening and not mixing by numbers because I've I've painted myself into a corner several times by doing that by going well, this usually worked and it worked last time. Why am I guitar so thin this time? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and. You know, I, I agree with what you said about it doesn't really change the mixing process because the mixing process should always be using your ears. But it's it's when people get into a habit of defaulting to certain numbers or certain frequencies like, you know, that's that's where things become problematic later on or when songs change keys or tunings or whatever, like then then all of a sudden everything shifts a little bit and, you know, those default numbers don't work. So, yeah, I, I love that you brought that up. Um Another thing that comes up with metal a lot, too, is like vocals. Um, and, you know, in most music, vocals tend to be one of the most important things because it's like the thing that people can relate to. Um, so when it comes to metal, like a lot of metal vocals are typically screams and screams are a very dynamic thing. And I'm curious to know, like, what are your tips for mixing metal vocals so that they sound controlled and clear in a mix? Um, well, it's it's funny. I... I was I didn't get to record a lot of um quote unquote brutal vocalists early on and it was something that always fascinated me you know when I was recording friends bands it was it was rock and pop punk and stuff like that and it wasn't till I kind of um had a bit more of a name locally that I was getting more of the the kind of death metal and metalcore and and modern uh brutal stuff coming in and um I learned pretty quickly that um like most things, the 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 sound is in the source, and if someone has a really great scream, you're going to capture it with a decent microphone, and that's going to be more than half of the sound. But in terms of mixing it, you know, I, I hate to to kind of um, say the same thing, but um, I find it's it's got a lot in common with um, with pop vocals where you want the vocals up front. You don't really want them moving around a great deal dynamically. Um, um, so, you know, there are a lot of parallels between mixing the the kind of like 
vocal-driven modern pop or, or electronica or, you know, dance music and stuff like that to to um, to um the heavier vocals. You you basically kind of, you, you want to saturate it, you want to limit it, you know, like maybe a couple of times and um, and essentially, you know, that's that's a lot of the sound and the rest is on the vocalist. Um, I'll tend to... I'll tend to kind of monitor while we're tracking with some pretty heavy compression, saturation, and limiting just in the box. And um, afterwards, I'll maybe run it through some some hardware. Um, I, I guess um, being the age I am, I came up uh, not being very committal. So uh, the, the thought of kind of committing to compression on the way in scares me a little bit these days i could confidently do it and and get away with it i just have a workflow that um that doesn't really require it at the moment so usually i'll I'll have a vocal template that's that's got some some uh plugins like uh monitoring um so i can really hear the nuance and and uh have the vocalists hear themselves very heavily compressed um afterwards i'll run it through a you know, 1176, um, probably uh, medium attack, medium to fast-ish attack, depending on how splatty the sibilants are. Um, very fast release, maybe four to one. Um, I'll really crush it. Like I'll, I'll, you know, get anywhere from 15 to 20 dB of gain reduction um, on that alone. Um, and the the idea behind the kind of not, treating it kind of like a limiter and having the um, ultra ultra fast attack and fast releases because sometimes uh, having a, a slightly slower attack will kind of add a little bit of a percussive element to the, the first part of the, uh, the, the phrase. Um, and then I can kind of smooth that over with a limiter in the box or something like that. Um, so I've, I've kind of got a little bit of a kind of explosive percussive attitude um, with my first um, round of compression and then I'm kind of evening off anything that's left over in terms of movement with my second round of compression. Um, you know, it, of course, there's some similarities between uh, you know, pretty harsh screams and distorted guitars, like anything with with high gain. Um, you have to watch out for for um low resonance, and you have to watch out for some some kind of nasty high peaks and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, there's there's not a a great deal um that goes into it in terms of you know like uh knowledge that's not already out there and stuff like that. Just making sure it doesn't move around, getting a great performance, having a great source and, and um, cleaning it up EQ-wise is, is, yeah, it's really about all that goes into to handling those type of vocals. For sure. You had mentioned that you kind of have a pretty dialed-in workflow when it comes to uh, tracking your vocals. Um, and when it comes to vocals, you know, dealing with burnout is definitely a big thing, you know, like when singers have to say the same lines over and over again, it can be pretty tiring. And I imagine that, you know, I, I know that there are proper techniques for screaming where you don't really like overexert yourself, but there are also a lot of people that are bad at screaming and really will like 
you know, push their vocal cords to the limit. And, you know, how, as far as like setting up things like levels and, and getting started with that, like how do you what what's your approach so that you're not wearing out the singers before they even actually get a good take, you know? That's a really good question. I mean, if I had my way, I'd um, I'd spend hours on gain staging on the way in <laughs> and, and dicking around with preamps and stuff like that. But as you've said, the reality is that even if you're not doing harsh vocals, the the voice really only has so much juice per session. Um, so I, I've found for me just kind of um, doing my due diligence in terms of um, – having a chain that I know works uh, and is pretty neutral for, for all types of voices. Um, having a couple of go-to um, uh, techniques for different types of screamers. And, and by that, I mean, you know, that you might get a, a screamer in that isn't projecting maybe as loud as another screamer is um, or that that's not... Um, producing the same level of, of distortion or, or rasp. And in some cases like that, I might push the preamp a little bit harder on the way in and back off on the output. Um, generally don't do that a lot anymore. I mean, you can, there's a lot of kind of cool plugins that can can do that after the fact. But um, if, if I'm really um, needing it, I can do that. Um, but for me, it's, it's just kind of knowing my gear, um and and kind of having a very efficient process to come in set my gain staging and go i mean um generally i've i've kind of landed on the sm7b which is you know 98% of of um harsh vocals are recorded on that um for me it just works i really have, have my ears have tuned into that microphone over the years um so Right off the bat, I know I'm using that. So the vocalist comes in. Um, I'll try not to. I'll try not to kind of let them talk too much. I'll kind of you know like if we're meeting for the first time, I'll you know just kind of get to know them a little bit, make them feel comfortable. But I'll I'll try to be conscious of not making them talk too much before we go in, and, and kind of trying to get them comfortable and moving things along pretty quickly. Once they're in there, I know I'm using the 7B. I know I, I really like my API 512V um, for those type of vocals. Um, I generally always have that there as a just, you know, perma-wired uh, preamp ready to go. Um, I know generally the gain staging for a, a certain level of screamer um, and I'll just kind of like let them know what I'm doing every step of the way and just, okay um, you know I I don't want to blow your voice out but we need to make sure that the mic isn't clipping in here so let's choose a part that's probably your you know most gnarly dynamic part let's do two or three passes of that and within two or three passes I've I've got the gain stage on the in of the pre the out of the pre um and then from there, I'll kind of set their headphone mix with some playback, and and I've I've kind of gotten pretty efficient at it at it over the years. I've got a vocal template that I, I pull up. It's it's um it's ready to go. It's it's I know it's working once a certain level is hitting it. Um, and also um, I'm not afraid to um you know to to do a couple of takes and then 
and then say, look, I need to back off on the preamp a little bit. Can we can we just do do those lines over again? But I mean, if if my gain staging isn't absolutely perfect in the box, as long as I'm not clipping and we're getting good performances and and something, I'll I'll just push ahead with it because yeah, sometimes that can be the difference between um, blowing a vocalist out before you've gotten what they need or um, or or uh, getting nothing, you know, getting a good performance. But um, yeah, I've, I've just kind of refined my workflow over the years, and I've 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 just kind of learned what to do. And uh, within the first couple of test um, lines, while I'm kind of setting the the gain staging on the pre and stuff like that, I'll be able to kind of quickly judge, you know, what type of vocalist they are and what skill level they have, and if they might need a little bit of help on the way in or, or something like that. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I've in my template, I've usually got the, the vocal tracks um, being sent to a bus so I can kind of see the, the, the level of, of um, signal kind of uh, pre pre compression and, and um, yeah, there's just kind of getting efficient with it. I've done it so many times. I've just refined it over the years. And and you're right though. Um, it's it's um you you're on kind of uh, borrowed time as soon as you um you know start recording those type of vocals. So generally before the band comes in, I'll um I'll kind of I'll have a chat with them and say, look, I think we should do you know half days. Or I think we should start the vocals as early into the process as possible. Um, a lot of people are, are ambitious. Um, maybe they they've um, tracked before and and not you know had someone producing them that's as as um, kind of picky as me. Um, and I generally I like to do a lot of layers as well um, for the modern metal stuff. It's everything down the center is doubled, and then everything in the chorus will be quadded um and then certain lines might be highlighted with a left and right quad so they're singing everything four times essentially so that can kind of um that can <laughs> kind of limit your time of um of uh ideal uh vocal performance uh, as well so so I'll, I'll kind of suggest beforehand look like you will hit a point of diminishing returns and at that point we'll call the session and usually it's, it's, you know, it's a, a half session. So I, I just kind of prep everybody's mindset that we're not going to be going, you know, if we get half a song done, cool. We'll come back. Vocals are easy to recall. So for sure. Biggie. Yeah. I think, yeah, definitely setting expectations is really important because yeah, you're going to get those singers that are like, Oh, I can do a full album in one day. And you're like, there's no chance in hell you're doing that. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that, that's awesome. And, and I think you're right too. It's, it's one of those things kind of to go back to what we talked about earlier, where like when you're constantly practicing and working on your craft, like you kind of pick up on a lot of those things a lot easier. And so when it comes to things like gain staging, it's like, if you've been practicing gain staging, you have a better sense of your equipment to know, okay, if I put my preamp here, I've got plenty of headroom, even if someone's super loud and I can work with that. And, and that definitely makes it more efficient for you when you're tracking. Cause then you, you're not having to worry about it. And, you know, also piss off the band trying to like, you know, let's do 10 takes while I get my preamp level. Like nobody has time for that, especially if they're going to then have to quad track the vocals and all that kind of stuff after the fact, it's just like mental burnout and physical exhaustion as well. Right. So totally. totally. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about drums as well. Um, and another big thing with metal drums is, uh, you know, often you're dealing with a lot of like double kicks and stuff like that, stuff that can be pretty fast. Um, and also just maybe kind of tying into the earlier question about guitar and bass, you know, like how do you deal with the low end of your kick drums and mixes? Because, you know, obviously they're fighting, uh, they're, they're adding a lot of low end energy, especially the faster stuff. And they're also going to be fighting against a lot of the kick or a lot of the guitar and bass stuff. Cause now it's in that kind of frequency range, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I like to assess if I can, the, the music beforehand and, and, I guess I have a, a certain threshold of speed um, after which we cross it that I might change my mixing or tracking techniques. Um, a lot of time these days, if we're, you know, if I'm dealing with a death metal band or a um, metalcore band that's, that's very kick drum centric, um, I'll maybe not track kicks on the way in for a certain part, or I might use like a, a roll and kick pad, kind of like you've got in the background there. Yep. Um, and that has a, a, a bunch of benefits in the mixing stage in that um, it kind of leaves the room mics open. So when you roll into a 16th note double kick part, you're not just getting this mass build up of low end in the room mics. Um, for the, um, the faster, you know, death metal, double kick, blast beat stuff. I think, I think automating the low end for those parts is really important. Um, there's a, a crazy amount of low end build up when you're playing that fast on, on a kick drum that, you know, I might in the mixing stage set like a, uh, a filter just to kind of automate off and on for, for those extended double kick parts. And then you've also got the options to voice the low end of the bass or kick drum above or below each other. I mean, people have different opinions on that. Um, but if, you know, you might listen to some of those kind of early 2000s, um, uh, you know, new wave of, of metal recordings and stuff like that, a lot, a lot of people voiced the low end of their bass below the fundamental of their kick drum, you know, just because the kick drum was so busy and so fast and, and doing so much that, um, it just makes more sense to do that. I mean, I generally like to have a big fat kick drum. I, I like to do that, but that's, that's always an option, but yeah, you know, um, riding the low end, depending on the part is, is an option and, and kind of choosing the right sample because I mean, let's be honest in, a lot of the modern you know, high production metal that's it's it's either going to be 90% sample or 100% sample so just choosing the correct sample and um and writing um volume of, of certain mics and stuff like that i mean but it, it will change from genre to genre and i think that is why it's so important to um know what makes the subculture of that genre tick um, for what you might do for a metalcore band might not be appropriate for a sludge metal stoner band. Um, and um, it, it, of course it depends on what you're going for creatively, but generally if, if, if I've got a metalcore band coming in, I, I know what type of kick drum sound and low end 
presence I'm going for. And then if I'm working on a, a stoner doom band or something like that, it's going to be the complete opposite, even though they're still in the realm of, of, of heavy music. Um, so making decisions like that for the aesthetic of the, the, the subgenre is, is pretty important because, you know, I, I wouldn't use a kick pad for, you know, a, a, a I hate God, um, you know, sleep type band or something like that. They want the kick to breathe in the room mics. They don't mind if the low end kind of blooms and builds up and gets a little bit messy and they're probably not playing as busy and, and not up there in tempo. But um, I certainly would do that for a, a tech metal band or a metalcore band or something like that. And, yeah, that provides you lots of lots of options to go from there is how you're going to treat the low end. But generally for the for the more fast extreme stuff it's it's always going to be riding the low end with automation and and um and uh you know on the guitar side of things kind of using multi-bands just to kind of kiss the resonance when um when the guitar's palm mute or or when there's you know you're playing in a certain octave and there's a build-up of a low frequency um yeah pretty pretty kind of standard techniques and i guess it comes back to to like once you have the fundamentals of of mixing you know like uh down and and you you understand the concepts and stuff like that it just becomes problem solving and metal just presents a bunch of unique problems and and the same way that pop or electronica does or something like that and you just kind of address them accordingly yeah for sure and it kind of goes back to what you had said earlier about the idea of just like having your vision for what that final sounds going to be so that you're you're taking the right steps to track it properly at the source because because yeah i mean if, if you know you're going to end up using samples for your kick drum then why bother even recording that kick drum i love i love that example <laughs> of using the trick the the kick triggers because i think it is something that makes your life a lot easier in the mixing stage if you're not fighting that other element that all along you knew you weren't going to keep anyway, you know? So it's just exactly. like, you know, it's the same sort of idea with like, you know, people that, that uh, record their drums and cymbals separately. It's like, it's just adding more control when you know, like what you want to <laughs> do with it, then you can, you can track things in a way that gives you that extra control. And, um, you know, it just makes your life a lot easier down the road. Cause you're going to get that sound you want a lot easier. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, in the past I've, I've like, learning to be like assertive in a, a kind way is, is a big thing. And um, uh, when I kind of started doing this, I wanted to please everybody and be everybody's best friend. And, and I, I still want to have a great session and get along with everybody, but I'm there to make sure first and foremost that we make the right decisions. And there's always that conversation you have with, with drummers particularly that, uh, you know, perhaps we should not play kicks for this part or we should track this part separately and this and that. And there's, there's always that process of, of um, kind of, you know, like the bruised ego at first and, and then kind of pushing back a little bit. And early on, I, I might've kind of let them kind of have their way just to avoid conflict or something like that. But you learn pretty quickly come mix time that, um, there is no fixing this thing and you could have made a different decision. So why not just kind of, you know, have that conflict and resolve it and, and kind of um, do what's right for the end process and the result 
early on because, yeah, there is no fixing a bad decision in terms of how you're going to track something on the way in when it comes to mix time. Of course. Yeah, that's that's super important. And, uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes sometimes the reason why you're able to get the quality of sound you are, you do get, get is because you have a certain technique that you use to track things. And, and you, you know, in the example of not playing kick drums in a certain section, it's like your expertise has told you that that is like the best way to do it. And if people are coming to you expecting that their recordings are going to sound as good as your other stuff, then like they have to understand that maybe that's just part of the process. And, you know, and, and I guess it's, it all comes back down to also just setting those expectations early on so that people understand like, okay, maybe, maybe this will come up in a session that we're, that we're going to do or that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, having those lines of communication and being able to just like, you know, have those conversations and then ultimately in the end, realize that everything we're doing here is for the purpose of the end product and, you know, getting, getting it sounding the way it's supposed to, um, yeah, when you have those conversations, it, it I think it eases the uh, the bruise of the ego kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, Jack, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I know it's super late for you right now, and you probably want to get some sleep. Um, if people want to learn more about you and follow you online, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, JackHartleyAudio.com um, and at JackHartleyAudio on Instagram. Um, or you can just Google my name, Jack Hartley Producer. Um not too far away. Awesome. And lastly, are there any cool projects that you're working on right now that you're excited to talk about? Um, at a stage uh, this year where I'm probably taking on quite a lot and feeling a little bit overwhelmed, but everything <laughs> is, uh, I'm, I feel pretty fortunate to have. So um, there's probably too many to name, but uh, I'm, a, a band Relapse is dropping a song uh, in a couple of days. Um and uh, I'm really looking forward to that. I think they'll be doing pretty cool things. I'm really excited for a band I'm working on called Catalyst. I think Catalyst are going to, to um, yeah, I think they're going to go pretty far. I'm just finishing up a full length for um, Safe Inside Records with um, a band called No Peace, super awesome hardcore band. Um, just dropped a track through Grayscale Records um, mixed by Lance Print from um from falsifier working on a japanese inspired death metal band called sunzu um yeah a bunch of cool stuff so yeah i'll, I'll repost them on my socials as they come out so yeah that's awesome man awesome well dude thank you so much for taking the time to do this i really appreciate it no problems thank you so much for having me on mike so that was my interview with Jack Hartley, and that was awesome. I loved the insight that he gave into getting his career started, and I also thought it was really cool to hear some of the techniques that he likes to use when it comes to tracking drums, and I love the idea of tracking, uh, of not tracking the kick drum and instead using a kick pad or a kick trigger to, you know, just get a little bit more control with your room mics, especially if you know what you're going to be doing in the end with samples, you know, maybe it is a better option to do it that way. And... I think one of the important points that he really brought up here is the idea of having a clear vision for what the final mix should sound like and what kind of things you're going to be doing in the mix to get that final sound. And when you know that, it certainly makes it a lot easier to make the proper tracking decisions so that you don't paint yourself in a corner later on and instead you get the results that you wanted all along. So yeah, I just love what he had to say there. I thought that was super helpful. So definitely make sure to implement some of these strategies into your sessions next time you go to record. 
So I hope that you found that interview very helpful. If you did, definitely make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And that way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live. I've got so many episodes. I'm way ahead of schedule right now. And we've got so many great interviews lined up. And uh, yeah, I think you're going to be in for a treat with some of these upcoming episodes. So definitely make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all those episodes. And if you haven't yet, or maybe you have, but you should do it again, definitely make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is a website where I've got tons of great resources designed to help people create pro sounding recordings from their home studios. That way you can showcase your talents in the best way possible. That way you can use these recordings to help grow your career. And one of the resources that you're definitely going to want to check out on there, it's called The Mixing Mindset. This is a book that I put out a while ago that became an Amazon number one bestseller. And it's all about making the process of mixing your music simple. And inside of that, I really break down the process of knowing what to listen for, what to do, what order to work in. That way you can have way more clarity as you work, way more focus as you work, and you're not going to feel scatterbrained throughout the whole process. It really breaks down the process to make it super simple. So definitely make sure to check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and it's available at MasterYourMix.com. So that is it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and I really look forward to chatting with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.